from Mesh AI. This is the Data and AI podcast. I'm Rid Lewis, and joining me again today is Deepak Venzi and Josh Walker. How are you? Yeah, good. Thanks, Rid. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Good morning, Rid. Glad to be back. Deepak, tell us more about today's show. So, joining us today is Andy McMohan. Andy's the head of MLOps at NatWest Group and author of the Machine Learning Engineering with Python book, as well as co-host of the AI Rod podcast and a recognized British Data Award winner in 2022 and Data Scientist of the Year in 2019. Andy, great to have you on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Great to be here, guys. Really excited. So, Andy, before we get stuck into the complicated and exciting world of MLOps, um, talk us through a bit more about your background, your role at NatWest, and what is it that attracted you to the company in the first instance? So a few few years ago, uh, back in the deep dark past, I did a PhD in physics when I suffered under, under the delusion that I would become an academic. So I went to Imperial College London, did my master's and PhD, loved physics, loved everything I was doing, but I kind of recognized that in the world of academia, to make an impact, you had to become extraordinarily focused on a very niche area and become sort of a, a super knowledgeable person about that area. And that to me just didn't sort of sort of chime with where I think my mind was going and where, where the sort of impact I wanted to have. I wanted to have a broader impact. I was really interested in questions about how do you have impact in industry? What do careers look like there? So through my PhD, I started exploring other roles. And this was at the time of the, the Harvard Business Review article saying data scientist was the sexiest job of the 21st century. So I thought, oh, that's good. Need a bit more of that, given I'm a physicist. So what I, what I investigated and found was that actually working in the world of data would leverage a lot of the skills I had. So the critical and logical thinking, the generation of hypotheses and the experimental validation of them, the Python and software development, I picked up the things around certain computing skills. So that kind of, that pushed me in that direction. And then I've not really looked back since. So I've worked in some different industries. I've worked in energy, I've worked in oil and gas, I've worked in logistics optimization. And now kind of the past couple of years, I've been at NatWest Group. And what tried to make to the company was a really great conversation with Greg Cowan, who's our head of data science for data innovation, who's now, now my peer. And I remembered Greg from a few years ago. I actually gave a talk at, I think it was Pi Data Edinburgh, when I was a bit, I was a bit greener. And he came up to me afterwards and says, I'm a I'm an academic. I've worked on the Large Hadron Collider. I want to move into industry. What tips do you have? And I gave him some tips. A few years later, he was my boss. So the tips obviously worked. Uh, but he gave he gave a kind of really good outline of the vision for data at NatWest and a lot about their ethos and how they are the sort of tagline is a relationship bank for a digital world. And we have a, a real a real focus on helping families, businesses, and people to thrive. And I really that sort of chimed with me. It was a really good value, I think. And then when he talked about all the cool challenges they had, and they were challenges, I wasn't kind of coming into everything fixed. There was so much work had gone into it, but it just sounded like a really great opportunity to come in and, and sort of help move things along. So my role now in NatWest is really focused on the question of how do you take the data we have, which is a lot of data, with 19 million customers in NatWest Group, we process something like one third of all sterling transactions worldwide, there's tons of data, right? We're not sure of data. The question is, how do you take that data, build models and analyses on top of it, and then transform that into software products that delight our customers and help our internal colleagues do, do their jobs better for our customers? And that is that is really the core of, I know we'll come on to what MLOps is in a bit, but that's really, for me, the core of what MLOps means, is that how do you build software products based on the smart stuff you can do with your data? And that's why I think about every day. I own the strategy for that. 
I organise our MLOps Centre of Excellence. I run our internal communities around that. I try and basically get all our scientists and engineers thinking in the way that enables them to deliver those products repeatedly, reliably, in a in a controlled fashion. You mentioned MLOps there. I think a lot of our listeners will understand what that term means, but some won't. So it'd be great if we could just have a quick digression and just talk about what MLOps actually is. So for for me, there's there's often a challenge when you when you talk about MLOps because of 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 what you've just said. So a lot of people have came at it with they've had some sort of pop culture reference to it, or they've seen the other article and they have an idea. They bring an idea of what it is, and I think the danger is that a lot of companies selling MLOps tooling. Sort of that filters into people's brain as MLOps is a new tool or it's a new platform. For me, it's not. For me, it's a culture. It's a set of practices. It's a way of working. And really what it embodies is the idea a few years ago in software of DevOps was that when you develop software and then when you operationalize or run it as a product, those were traditionally two separate teams, two separate activities. DevOps years ago brought them together in a way that autonomous teams could go through the whole end-to-end life cycle. And that helps you move at pace more. It helps people actually understand the domain and the product, kind of be in charge of the operations of it, which is a good thing. MLOps is just extending that to the world of advanced analytics and machine learning. So it's at its core, it's DevOps, but it adds in a few extra pieces. And the extra pieces really focus on the new questions that arise when you do machine learning. So how do you manage this concept of a model? You're training models. What does that mean? How do you manage them in a way that's appropriate, given that it's not exactly code? It's slightly different. How do you monitor these models? Because these models can go stale. They're different from classic software artifacts in the sense that the data flowing through them has a direct impact on their performance. So how do you constantly test that what they're doing is correct? How do you monitor when those behaviors change? And that's called drift monitoring. Um, And then a series of other sort of related activities that all underpin this idea that when you take your data build transformations and models on top of it, and then run them in production. So in an environment where they're integrating with other systems or with customers, how are you just operationalizing that and managing that? And that in a nutshell to me is what MLOps is. It's not the tools, but that's a part of it. It's really a question of people, process, and the product you're building. Brilliant explanation. Thanks, Andy. So there's automation, things like putting the models that the data scientists are designing, building in through sort of automation and making sure that it's available to everyone who needs it. Um, and the infrastructure and whatnot's all available. So it sounds like quite a tall order. I'm assuming it's not just you at NowWest doing this. You must have um, a group of people helping you. It's, li- it's literally not me. It's all my amazing team and the teams I work with. So I just kind of, I give the odd PowerPoint deck and sort of put my feet up because I have such an amazing team around me. Um, so yeah, I have, I have a core team that represent um, sort of the core of our center of excellence. So what, what that really means is they are they are constantly pushing the innovation envelope for from that west and asking the questions what is the what is the new tooling we should use what are the new ways we should think about processes what does a good operating model look like how should you organize your teams to to deal with this brave new world of taking models in production and then our community is really a sort of a federated community where all of the teams that are aligned to lines of business trying to do this all come together so my core team just help with that more innovation side of it and then what we do is a collective it's a far larger collective so there's 500 data scientists and engineers in data and analytics in our West group. So there's a huge community that we're trying to get on the same page and aligning in their strategy. So there are different mechanisms for doing that. But basically the idea is we sort of just filter out those best practices and we collectively come together to define what our strategy looks like at the highest level for MLOps, which is something I sort of own and work with 
with a core team of MLOps representatives from across the bank to do. And then there are specific sort of tweaks on top of that that are specific to the different lines of business. So no, it's a massive team. And then that's just the MLOps function. There's then entire teams dedicated to spinning up our platforms, to migrating our data and hosting our data on our data lake. So there's a it's a real way, it definitely takes a village to grow an MLOps baby. That's how it maybe phrase it. Um, but there is there is a lot of a lot of really hard, amazing work that's going on. Um, and a, a lot of it was kind of articulated over the past year and we did a series of blog posts with AWS that's on their machine learning blog site. Details are kind of journey from tinkering on the cloud through to now a full full enterprise scale MLOps platform. Uh, and we've spoken a lot at different summits, et cetera, about this and the impact it's had on our business. So yeah, it's been a massive transformation, but definitely it took it took a whole whole swathe of people. Um, I'm just a nice talking head for it, I think. How long's that journey been going on for, Andy, for you and for NatWest? So the entire journey, and, and Greg, who I mentioned earlier, um, he talks about how when he joined the bank four or five years ago, couldn't use Python. Python is like obviously the lingua franca of data. Everything's written in Python. Uh, but they couldn't use Python, couldn't spin up an environment. It just wasn't thought of as a language. When I joined like two and a bit years ago, maybe two and a half years ago now, that was there. They'd done so much work taking us from zero to, to where we were. So people were generating tons of value. They were building models. They were getting them into production. But now kind of the, the evolution over the past 18 months to two years, I would say, has been the big transformation. So that's when we've taken that initial tinkering and getting the odd thing through now to really building this factory where data scientists can get the environments they need, they can get the tooling they need, they understand the processes, and they can just charge forward to driving value for, for our colleagues and customers. So I say the past 18 months in particular has been the really hot area where so much activity, so much investment, but it's really starting to pay dividends now because we're seeing all these improvement in operational metrics, we're seeing improvements in the empowerment of our data scientists across the board. So but yeah, I would say that it's been a long road for a lot of people. I kind of came in and just uh, caught, caught the wave as it was rising, which was nice. So, but I think um, it's been the past 18 months coming up to two years where we've had that major transformation. Now, now I'd say we've really professionalized what MLOps means. Andy, you actually, you talked about so much there and there's, there's so much more I want to ask you around a lot of the stuff you talked about around the communities, the team topologies, the way in which you applied the DevOps ways of thinking extended that in effect to your AI insights and ML teams. But Perhaps for, for those of our listeners who aren't always au fait of actually the tangible use cases of applying ML within a financial services institution, let that be on, on the commercial banking side or almost on, on the business and investment banking side, would you be able to give us a view of actually what are the key areas where ML plays a key role within within NatWest and, and then for us to sort of expand on the implications that has on the broader financial services um, sector, because particularly over the last 18 months, there's of course been quite a lot of boom around, you know, chat GPT, that's sort of democratizing the applications around AI, but also discussions around LLMs and, and other different um, AI techniques and models. Could you perhaps give us some insights into the role that plays within NatWest? So I know we've definitely got to a good place in NatWest because if I may, if I think of any line of business, you know, fun crime, fraud, commercial, wealth, retail, et cetera, we have machine learning models there and they're doing different business activities. So some that can come to mind are the classic ones in finance, right? The fraud detection. There's uh, fraud crime detection using various different tools and uh, technologies. There's 
a really big piece of work that there's a paper being published recently and we'll maybe if we could link to it, that'd be good um on the archive about our customer lifetime value modeling proposition so this is where uh, in a partnership with uh, quantum black at mckinsey we really built a very sophisticated set of models that help understand the evolution of the product holdings of our of our customers and then help optimize that journey for them um so there's there's kind of some really sophisticated stuff like that we're now using deep learning in different areas we are basically applying ml wherever i think there's there's data and we have a very good a good kind of ethos of I think sniffing out the places where it's it's real value generation. It's obviously not foolproof activity for anyone, but I think what I'm seeing is that ML is really now becoming part of the part of the lifeblood of the organization, which then then makes my job kind of more more timely, I think, because now we're getting to that stage of okay, there's ML everywhere. How do we industrialize it? The challenge of the large language models, I think, is going to be a big discussion. You mentioned that you know NatWest is a relationship bank for the digital world. The business is coming on that journey with you and you were speaking to you know a business line only yesterday and then taking them on that journey so is it an education piece are you coming to them with use cases and ideas or are the business coming to you like what's that relationship like within that west yeah no there's, there's a huge education piece and i'd say deep back to your point about financial services more generally and, and maybe all of industry i think it's i think it's clear that that education journey has been the the, the kind of most urgent transformation the organizations have had to go through the past few years. It's one thing, you know, hiring lots of engineers and saying, I'm going to read Andy's amazing book. I'm only joking, but we're going to do this. And we're going to apply all this, but it's, it's very different, really business stakeholders, understanding that and translating that to business value. And I think, I think that's a huge part of mine and my team's job. Yeah. So like yesterday, we ran an MLOps workshop with 150 people in one of our lines of business. We do a lot of that sort of activity, generating a buzz and a fuel. And often it's it's about I think we've I think we've done a good job the few years before I arrived about justifying what data science was and what it was a value add. Now the question is the next stage: why is value, MLOps a value add? And it's really it's really the kind of conversation I'm always having is: do you want to generate ten proof of concepts or five applications? Everybody picks five applications <laughs> because those are the things that drive value. Those are the things that get in the face of customers and help them on their journey. Those are the things that help colleagues, they help operations. So. The education piece is huge and that, that's a large part of my job. So kind of helping guide senior data, data science stakeholders or platform stakeholders or wider business stakeholders and just really helping kind of sell that vision of what the bank could be. And we're, we're doing well on that journey, but we can always we can always move faster than any organization can. But yeah, the education piece is massive. I think to your point, Deepak, that's the big transformation I've seen in the wider industry past fields. And in the past six months with ChatGPT, it's now, it's now really in people's faces, right? Even my mum knows what ChatGPT is, which is uh, which makes my job at selling what I do a lot easier. So that's good. Yeah, and 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 I think one of the you know one of the hurdles that we've often come across, Andy, particularly within the industry in itself, is the fact that if we were to almost reel back a couple of years, you know, even when we were going through the DevOps part of the change, when we looked at cloud adoption and the introduction of new technologies and techniques, um, a within the sector, there's always um, quite a, a regulatory framework that organizations are often quite mindful of and making sure that you're able to adhere to the compliance requirements that you're able to adhere to your wider risk and governance frameworks that you've got to be mindful of i think particularly with with, with mlops which i'm sure is something you've come across is there's quite a lot of aspects to be mindful of first and foremost is 
the data that's feeding your models and making sure everything with regards to the data quality, the data governance, and on the risk of checks and balances that you need around that are, are appropriate. But then, of course, you've got the aspects related to the actual models themselves. Let that be in the training and tuning phase. Let that be in the inference phase and making sure, again, the steps that are being taken are ethical, do not have an element of bias and a variety of other checks and balances that you sort of need. And of course, you know, the UK has always led the charge when it comes to a lot of these discussions, but I'm sure it's 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 certainly not been easy for you. Um, so talk us through actually, you know, how were you able to give your business teams when you've gone to them with use cases and had the discussion around, should we look at POCs or applications? How have you been able to bring them on board along with other aspects such as your governance teams, your risk teams, your security teams, to make sure actually everyone in the bank can get behind this as opposed to just your team in particular? This is the the ops part of MLOps that some people think is maybe the less kind of super hot interesting bit, but I, I kind of love it. I think if you can I think if you can crack this question, like you're saying, Deepak, you're just you drive massive value in any industry, but especially in a high high regulation environment. So so I think that I think the key thing is we're not throwing out the baby with the bathwater. We're not starting again. And that's so important to tell people, right? A lot of the governance and processes that we have in place, internally in technology in a bank, they might frustrate people, but they've came from the right place and they protect our customers and ourselves. And it's very important to be cognizant of that. So I think it's important never to come out and go, right, I've got an idea. We're going to go white whiteboard everything from the start and just throw everything out. We'll start again. That's never going to work, right? Think um, in that West Group, the kind of core bank is RBS, Royal Bank of Scotland. It's been around for hundreds of years. I'm not going to come in and change what hundreds of years have built up into the wall. Right? But the key thing is, is, I think, recognizing what's there and then picking at the bits that have real value and real implement really good controls, but asking the question of, can we automate? Can we expedite? And can we augment? And kind of going after those pieces and being very targeted and selective and then what you can do is kind of take what's a massive question and boil it down to key pieces where you can drive the value so if you know this particular aspect of your governance framework actually how, how would we validate that model was safe before for example just hypothetically maybe you had to run lots of manual checks you had a data scientist with all these kind of horrible notebooks and producing lots of charts and they stick it in a big document and send it to a team to review why don't we automate that? Why don't we build it so that we have a framework, a test framework you can apply to the models, automatically generates that report, but still has the human oversight from the model risk management team. So you've kept the process, you've kept the central team, you've kept the expertise in the same place in the process. But what you've said is, look, we can move this bit faster. And if you just kind of become targeted like that and bring in all the stakeholders, like you mentioned, at the relevant pieces, then I think we've, we've seen real gains in that. So in a lot of our talks, in the public domain, we've spoken about how we've we sped up sort of what previously took around say five six weeks to get environments up and running and set up and access to data. We shortened that dramatically to sort of a week. In some cases, maybe less. In some other cases, a bit more. In some other cases, because it's not always perfect. Um, but but I think I think what we've seen is just that kind of accepting that there's lots of good stuff here, and then asking where you can help make things have higher throughput or implement more more quality controls actually. And it might be maybe strange hearing people say that because from a DevOps MLOps background, people probably think fast, fast, fast is all you think about. But we have a real emphasis on quality. Helps differentiate us a little bit as a as an organization, as a bank, I think, because 
Time to value and moving fast is definitely a core part of what we do, but we, we do place a lot of emphasis on the fact that really, if we can implement controls that help make the solutions we build of higher quality, we're only going to help those controls and regulation frameworks apply, but we're also going to help the quality of the products we put into the world and help our people. So, so we spend a lot of time on that aspect. But, but yeah, I think that picking apart things piece by piece is important. And, and I think the, the aspect that you mentioned around around quality, and I would almost sort of extend that to reliability is critical, isn't it, Andy? Because we, we've looked at the impact site reliability engineering had when it came to applications and platforms. But actually, you can apply very much all the same principles to your ML model than your ML lifecycle, right? The way, the way in which I've always seen it is a lot of your platforms are kind of, and platform ops is is the core foundation that you need. You then move on to application and sort of dev ops, if we sort of wanted to call it that. You then have data that comes on top of it. And actually your ML models are amalgamation of all of these and, and how actually describing that entire experience on how you're exposing all these all these artifacts within your digital stack, right? Um, And one of the challenges sort of, we've also seen quite a lot, which would be interesting to get your take on is actually within an MLOps function and even an ML product team, say for instance, you're not always the team controlling the data that's feeding into your models because you're not, fundamentally, you're not the domain that's providing the data. Actually, you have to go and work with the domain teams to feed you the right quality data in line with perhaps the data contracts that you might've agreed with each other to make sure that your models can continue to perform in line with the standards and expectations that you need. How have you, talk, talk me through what's your experience been like that on on NatWest, because of course you, you must interface with a vast variety of domains within the organization and how's that experience been for you? Yeah, so I think I think that's a really good question. I think um, a lot of the work that got on before I joined really opened up those doors for those conversations. So as I mentioned, sort of getting data science into the public, public consciousness, if you like, of our of the people at NatWest had really had really gone very strongly. I think to the point about taking that the next stage, it's about it's about really helping knowing letting people know where you're going to help them and help their objectives and their goals, right? Nothing's going to annoy someone more. It would annoy me if I come to you as a business owner of a certain sort of business application process and I say, your data quality is crap, improve it. I'm not going to tell you why. <laughs> That, that would really kind of annoy people, right? So what's important is actually when you engage with these elements of the business, you're often building an application really for their business process. So just constantly tying it to, look, the ROI we're going after here, it's so critical in curating the data quality or the inputs. So like you say, maintaining good data contracts, let's work together on that. And it'll mean all this work we're in, investing in doing is going to really capture the value we want. And I think that's that's a far easier sell and I was going out to the whole organization with an email blast or something and saying, improve data quality, please. It's a bit rubbish. So it's, again, about targeted conversations and about selling the journeys for the specific areas. And I kind of, I've got this, I don't know if this has been proven out in reality yet, but I've got this kind of view that a lot of things work well by bootstrapping, or kind of snowballing, if you like. I think once you open that door and you start that conversation, it builds a bit of momentum. You just need to keep kind of tending at the odd time but it will keep kind of building its own momentum. And eventually people will understand that the data they hold in their parts of the business are a massive asset to the organization and to their own teams and to our customers. And once they recognize that, the sort of curation and taking care of their systems and data becomes second nature. And a lot of, all of the teams have that. 
somewhere early on the journey and recognizing that. Um, but that's that's the kind of conversations we have. So it's always about it's always about partnership. It's always about support. It's always about how we drive ultimately the best outcome. And I think when you frame things like that, people are a lot more receptive to maybe some of the challenges you raise. Um, because you're right, we don't we don't own those systems. Um, data analytics is a centralized function in NatWest. Although it faces off, it has specific components that face off to the lines of business. It's still like our enterprise data like, is sort of centralized. So that means by nature, we don't control all the systems and it wouldn't work. We'd need like a million people. And we already have a lot of those people and the, and the businesses looking after their applications. So it's really just about in each case, broaching that subject. And there's been a lot of great work in our data lake teams and our platform teams having those conversations over the past few years. I think now as data flows through into more and more products that directly impact customers and colleagues, that conversation becomes a bit easier. Because you say, you know that, you know that massive issue we had that would really be helped by a good data curation process or you know this kind of this value we had here we could 2x that we had higher quality data so it's kind of we're not starting it's not greenfield but there's there's a lot of kind of a lot of a way to go in that conversation so the conversations are about the value that you can provide to internally within within that vessel to 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 your customers rather than just being a fix this problem that makes a lot of sense and given that you're sort of two plus years in sounds like you made significant you know improvements in that west but a lot of companies and a lot of listeners who are tuned in they won't they won't be in the same place that you are so what kind of things do organizations need to consider when they're considering adopting mlops do you think ah uh, yeah so one of the, one of the kind of phrases i thought about a while back and i kind of say to people is uh if you think you're not doing mlops you're just doing mlops badly so i think that basically this question of when does mlops kick in is a bit of a misnomer because if you are building models or analyzing data and trying to generate value from that, you're already de facto operationalizing in some sense. You may not be doing it very well. You know, you may not be monitoring, you may not be curating, you may not even apply version control to your code, but that just means you're not kind of investing in those aspects. And it might be that that's not the right time for you. Everybody's unique, right? You're a punchy startup with three people and your job is just, you know, prove that something is possible. Do I expect you to spend all your time getting 80% unit test coverage and doing a big suite of regression tests and stuff? Probably not. Same with small punchy teams doing certain things within, within the organization. However, if you are at the stage where you know, no, the value is going to come from us industrializing and becoming a factory of pushing out these products and they're becoming sort of the norm, then I think you have to professionalize that operational aspect. And that's when you start investing in software engineering skills, when you invest more in the ML engineers and the ML ops platforms, when you invest a bit in the tooling, but like I said before, it's important that that's not the first thing. The first thing is really getting the right people in the right place and then organizing them with the right process, I think, and then looking after the data, as you mentioned, Deepak. So there's kind of a really important, there's an important kind of reframing, I think, has to happen for organizations. And it's all about just, just how much they want to turn up the dial at certain points. And that's that's so specific to their context. I would really hate if I dictated to everyone, right? Once you've done three models, it's MLOps time. I don't think that works. But the key point is be aware that you are naturally doing MLOps, just maybe not to the level you will have to later on. And I think that that that's that reframing maybe helps people because it's less about, oh my God, what's the barrier to entry like? How much do I need to get started? You're already started. All you can do is invest more time in it and it'll get better. So I think I think that's an important reframing that, that I use quite a lot. That's a great observation. So even if you think you're not doing it, if you're working with large data sets, modeling, you're already doing it, but 
perhaps there's, there's things you can do to improve. And one thing, Andy, I was keen to sort of understand a little bit more about. It. So, in terms of DevOps pipelines, you know, one of the sort of presets is that making sure that you know the feedback time on a pipeline for a developer is short, so the cycle to actually understand whether a change has had a detrimental effect to a downstream system. The goal is obviously to try and find that as quickly as possible, so that that can be resolved. One thing I'm interested to know about is if when you're working with sort of very large data sets, do you find that that's kind of the lead time to get feedback actually increases and therefore you've got a different problem or is there ways around? I love this question. It's a detailed one. I like it. So I think, I think absolutely it's, this is one of the key differentials between developers and the data space, like you're picking up and classic software, right? There are things you can do. Um, but the main, the main challenge I think come up in a few areas. So there's one, one the massive data sets, like you said. So if you're trying to do tests on the statistical performance of a model, more data is better, but more data is more transformation, is more time, is more ingestion. So that that does take time. The other thing that I think we see now is um, the spinning up of environments, even ephemeral environments on the cloud. That's kind of an important one. And a lot of people report this, I think, where the whole kind of benefit of managed services on public clouds is you spin it up, you use it, you spin it down. But spin up takes time. And you need to start thinking about things like, can you have warm pooling of resources? Can you know have things ready off the hopper? Are you happy to pay the extra cost for having resources just sitting there? But it means you have faster access times. And that's a constant kind of complex financial equation you have to balance and an operational equation. So I think there's that. And then there is kind of pulling all that together in, like you're mentioning, a CI/CD DevOps world. So how do you do this continuously? And one of the kind of powerful ideas I think um, I've been exploring this quite a bit recently for, for my book and some other things that internally and externally is this idea of continuous validation of your model. So how can you take the subsets of data that allow you to move fast, but still ascertain if you're degrading performance by making a specific code change? So for example, if I'm building a simple regression model or something, and I want to just check every time I do a code update, have I really screwed up the model? You could potentially get away with, you know, taking some subset of data as a, as a mock object in your test framework and saying, here's, here's a sort of piece of data I'm going to use as validation. And just constantly asking the question of your model, given the latest commit or latest pull request to my repository, if I run this quick model validation check, is my accuracy still 60%, 70%, whatever it is on this subset of data? What you're maybe not saying there is, does that represent production performance? Because to do that, I need massive data sets. But here, what I'm just saying is, look, here's a, here's a test I can write. And what it'll mean is if I delete a feature in my pipeline, I'll maybe see that test performance drop or I'll see something else weird going on. And then you do things like directed expectation tests where you kind of, I expect if I remove this feature, the accuracy should go down. So I just always check, does that work? If it shoots up, something weird's going on. You know, this. so there are, there are ways around it. I think... Um, it's a perennial kind of complex optimization problem where you just have to think, you know, where where is the value add? Where is the time invested? Because you could just do kind of full runs all the time. And I think this is often where people start. I think this is where we started, where you get you get the pipeline, if you like, the piece of code, you deploy it to the cloud, it spins up the environment, it ingests all the data and it runs all the tests. That takes ages, like you say. So that kind of moving towards that faster development cycle, I think is important for moving at pace in general for development, but also kind of developer experience, which I think is something I'm super passionate about as well. You want your people engaged and happy and excited by what they're doing. If they're waiting around for three hours for something to run, it's a bit 
a bit more painful. But they're always around, but I think that's one of those important challenges we need to solve. So Andy, I guess building upon some of the points that you mentioned around the ephemeral environments that you and the team create on AWS and, and also your partnership um, with them as, as a cloud provider, perhaps if, if we took a step back and look at cloud adoption more broadly within, within the financial services sector globally, but also particularly in the UK, went through quite a lot of scrutiny to avoid challenges such as concentration risk for, for critical national infrastructure and and key services that a variety of sectors in in the in in the country provide. Now that we're starting to see, you know, Google, AWS, Amazon start to provide foundational models as something that organizations can start to build upon. Do we see foundational models heading down a similar path where these start to run into similar scrutiny um, from regulators? And what would be perhaps some of the key gotchas and considerations you would perhaps suggest organizations to sort of bear in mind before they start consuming these and, and building upon set models? Yeah, no, good, great question. So I think I think this this kind of touches a little bit on the question of, of lock-in more generally. So like you said, that was a big question about clouds. You know, We have a very strong partnership with AWS. A lot of people have partnerships with Google or Microsoft or whoever in terms of the public clouds. And I think those partnerships are extremely valuable and very important. There is a perennial question of, you know, if I want to do a specific thing over here because they have a better solution, how complex is that? And I think that's where the people and process aspect comes in. And if you if you invest in the people and the good processes, so if you invest in quite abstracted solutions, you know, you use infrastructure as codes, you use really good development practices, et cetera, I think it becomes a lot less daunting to lift and shift if you ever had to. Um, so, so for example, if you've if you've kind of really invested in people understanding, you know, what are good software development practices like, how do you build good ML pipelines, how do you monitor and schedule and manage them, that should apply anywhere. Whereas I think if you take a tools first mindset, the prospect of migration or changing might become may become a lot more daunting. The foundation models question is super interesting and something I've been thinking a lot about recently. So it's very clear that not every organization is going to build their own large language model of the scale of these foundation models or their own vision models, et cetera. They will probably build their own domain-specific smaller large language models, smaller LMs, I don't know what we'd call them. And I think that's that's still a very useful route to go down. The other questions are around, you know, how much can you use the foundation models but provide in-context learning but still protect your IP and your, your personal identifiable information? So there's, there's a whole swathe of problems in there and what's now being termed LLM ops, which some people hate the term. I love the term. Um, so so I, I like it. So this whole question of how the MLOps apply to large language models and the use of foundation models in general. I think the, the idea of lock-in is less of a concern for me in foundation models because they're often quite, quite kind of self-contained services that you have via REST API. The main questions you need to ask are how do you hit that securely, securely and how do you manage the data flow in and out? But once you, that's kind of, that's it really. If you've got those questions sorted and some of that's a big open question, right? I'm not saying that's solved. But then it's kind of, you know, one day you're using this large language model over here and the next you're pivoting and using the other one. Although you won't train your own large language model of the same size, you may want to import and use an open source one. So there's a really interesting open question now, I think about if you use like the Dolly model that Databricks uh, reduce, uh, produced or Stability LM or what, one of these, or Stable LM, whatever it's called, one of these new kind of open source models. Is it worth organizations time, energy, effort to import that model to the organization and run it on infrastructure themselves 
and therefore they control the data flow a lot more? Or is it always better to offload it to a third party and just consume it as, a, as an API, uh, as a service hit via API? I think that's a big open question. I don't think anyone knows the answer. If they think they know the answer, they're lying. Um, and that includes me. But I think, I think there's a lot of really good questions to unpick there. Um, and that's something I'm thinking a lot about for chapter in the new edition of the book, actually. It's all about generative AI and LLM ops. And that's kind of, it's one of the things with, I'm thinking about in a lot of detail, but don't know the answer yet. I think it's a, it's got slightly different emphases than the cloud debate and the general tooling lock-in debate, but there are there are some echoes in there, but I think it's slightly different. Yeah, and, and, and I think, you know, certainly you, you mentioned Dolly there from, from Databricks. I, th I think an interesting aspect here, of course, is, is definitely going to be, A, um, how many of these models and foundational models that are being provided either as, as past services from cloud providers, how many of them are actually going to be open source? Because actually, if they are open source, then actually all the cloud providers are doing is providing it to you with a financially sound consumption model. Then that's actually that that makes your regulatory conversation a lot easier. But of course, we also do know that a lot of them, for example, with the recent releases of Palm by Google, for instance, which was just released two days ago, a lot of these are, are quite proprietary, right? And and then you almost go into a very similar conversation of okay, well, if you had to change your foundational model, but still keep the output of your model the same, how do you do that? And I'm I'm sure from an MLOps perspective, you now start to go into a plethora of, of, of aspects that you have to start considering, right? The whole consistent behavior thing is a problem we really need to crack fast as a as a community, I think. So I sort of started terming it prompt ops. <laughs> Too many ops now. We just have to, I often have this conversation internally where I say, we should just bring them all together as X ops or something. Because the data ops, there's dev ops, there's ML ops, there's LLM ops, there's too many ops. Sec ops, right? But this kind of idea of, managing your prompts and the fact that the same prompt in different large language models could give very different results. That's a hard place to be. It's a very hard place to be as data scientists and models. We like control. Things are stochastic enough in machine learning. Like the fact that I prompt chat GPT with a phrase and then the next day I prompt Bards and I prompt Bing's search AI and I get totally different answers. That That is a hard control problem to solve. And I think there's going to be a lot of effort expended to your question, Deepak, about how how you set up as organizations the frameworks so that you're able to bring consistency where consistency is kind of just not not par for the course. And then like you said, that that also links into the question about switching between models for certain performance reasons also now has the the real question about the proprietary angle, the licensing, and then also the I think the, the provenance of the data. Provenance of data is a really important question anyway, but at least in an organization and in your internal data sets, you know that provenance, or you should. For a large language model where that, that's consumed so much data, it could be very hard to understand what might I let myself in for by using certain models. So I think there's, there's, due, there's due diligence required. And I think when you partner with the public clouds, like you say, who've, who've done that due, due diligence on your behalf, that might be an easier conversation. But there will be cases where you know you think, if I want the the Dolly model or one other the open source models brought in, those are the questions you'd have to ask. That's what people are thinking about just now. So yeah, it's a lot of questions to answer. I don't think we know all the answers, but it's it's a super exciting time to be in this space. And and, and I think to to your point, Andy, what it's also certainly going to do is it's going to elevate the profile of envelopes a lot more even, right? Because it's going to be it's going to start to become even more critical for organizations to have a framework 
that's able to cater for a lot of different models across a variety of different platforms, but still being able to adhere to your common rule set, your compliance framework, and and making sure that the behavioral aspect that you talked about is in line with the expectations that you as an organization want to set, right? So it's certainly quite an exciting time to um, to be in the space for sure. Yeah, definitely. I think I think you're totally right. I think it really it really emphasizes that ops point because ops is now super complex. It was complex enough, but now with large language models and foundation models, I think it's it's taken on an entire new kind of set of arms and legs. Um, which is fun trying to tame, but definitely means we've got a lot of questions to answer. So I'm excited for trying to answer them. You mentioned some of the LLM and Gen AI pieces have been mentioned in your new book. So that might be a good segue into understanding what that second edition brings to the fore. The mention of Gen AI might just whet the appetite for, for new readers. But, uh, you know, tell us a bit about the new book. You know, what are the hot takes without giving too much away? Tease, but don't give the full answer. Yeah. So the first, the first book was really about having a, I prioritise breadth over depth, sort of intentionally in the first book. So the idea was to give people a book where they could get kind of a brain dump from me of some of the core foundational aspects in most areas of ML engineering and ML ops you should consider. So it was kind of, it was um, it was a bit like, here's an important aspect of the problem. Here's enough to get started. Here's another important aspect of the problem. Here's enough to get started. And with some kind of insights and a lot of worked examples in that. The second edition of the book really adds to that by providing a lot more depth in certain areas. So a lot of the stuff we've I've invested time in is really about things like advanced pipelining tools and technologies. So things like um, an open source one, so Kubeflow's NML, solutions like that, and really helping people take what they've built with that core foundation to the next level. So there's a lot of the, all of the original content in the book has been kind of reformatted and brought to speed, but there's, there's, there's tons of new content bringing in that depth. There's also an entirely new chapter now going to be on deep learning and generative AI and LLM ops, very pertinent, as we were saying. Um, and in that, I'm going to focus, you know, on things like, you know, how do you use, how do you use Langchain to build new pipelines? What, what, is archi- what does architecture now look like for large language model applications? Uh, how, do you, how do you think about working with AI assistants when you're coding? So I've started playing with GitHub Copilot and things like that. I talk about that in the book and what that means for ML engineers. And then there's more emphasis on worked examples using things like Kubernetes, et cetera, and a bit more. Although I mentioned some more pipelining tools and other MLOps tooling, there's a bit more about, you know, how do you build scalable solutions that are platform agnostic? There's a lot invested in worked examples with Kubernetes and other solutions and Docker, et cetera. So yeah, it's kind of, I've, I've modernized it a bit. I've added a lot more depth in certain areas, and then we've we've kind of brought in a lot more of the the very hot topics in there. So I'm I'm really excited for it. I just need to finish the bloody thing, but that's, that's a separate question. I'm really nearly there. I was trying to do it before my wife has baby two, but I think I'll just kind of while baby two is here, we'll trundle along and do the final edits and things. But we're we're very nearly there. But I'm very excited about this one. And um, I felt there was a lot from the first edition that I gave to people, but I think this one kind of really adds to that quite substantially and it, it's something I'm, I'm going to be quite proud of I think when I when I get a copy. So there's not a, a, an official release date as of yet we'll have to get people waiting with bated breath uh, for the for the big announcement. Yeah I think we were originally aiming for June I think because of this new chapter and stuff it's maybe going to be July August time shouldn't be it shouldn't be later than that. 
And the book's one part of your work, right? You're quite big in the community. We're doing a podcast with us today. You spend time doing education in your own world at NatWest, but broader, uh, broader than that. I was just curious, beyond the academic nature of your of your background and your interest in learning, like why is it important to you to help build and grow the community as it is, and why is it important to kind of build that that next generation of ML superstars, as it were, to you? Where does that interest come from? Good day. Good time for psychological self-analysis. I think that's good. So I think, I think for me, I've always one of the things that attracted me to this idea of being an academic was the idea of teaching. I've always loved teaching. I used to tutor as a side job. I love communicating. I love written and verbal communication. I just love the idea of transferring of ideas. So that's always been something I'm super passionate about. So that meant during my PhD, I wrote for the Imperial College Science magazine. I kind of I did I did little bits here and there. Uh, a really fun thing I did was I was a part-time science consultant for a show on the Discovery Channel during my PhD. That was great fun. And I've spoken about that in other podcasts where I was explaining, you know, a guy taking the magnet of a microwave and putting on a pole and running a current through it and making electronics blow up or someone doing really stupid things on skateboards and going around loop the loops and, you know, what's the moment? You had to explain all the science behind it. So I've always been super passionate about science communication and getting that across uh, and mentoring. So I think all of that comes together just to just to the fact I'm kind of nicely couched among that is I'm just super passionate about all this. I think what a time to be alive, what a time to be working in data. We're literally watching the world transform in front of our eyes. Um, I'm a bit skeptical and contrarian of some of the things about, you know, AI is going to take all our jobs and all these other things. I am kind of not totally on that bandwagon, but I do think it's such an exciting time to be in technology. And I just kind of, I just, I just love talking about it. It's like, I would do this as a hobby anyway. It just so happens I can go into my day job and talk about it, and then in the, in the evenings talking right about it as well. So, so I think I think that's important. I think the mentoring aspect as well. So I mentor currently three very talented women, uh, one from uh, an organisation in Scotland and in America, um, one in one she's based in America, and then another one internally in that West. And I'm kind of I've always kind of thought mentoring and coaching is such an important thing and trying to give back. What little I can, because I'm relatively privileged. I've had a very good career so far. Hope it stays that way. <laughs> I don't do anything crazy. Um, and I've been very lucky. And I think it's just important to try and give back what what little you can when when I sort of have time for that. So, so yeah, it's just it's an important part of you know me and my makeup. And I just I just love doing it. I love the sound of my own voice, Josh. It's basically it. <laughs> well, Andy, thanks so much for joining us today. Where can people find out more about the work you're doing? Uh, yeah, so uh, if you follow me on LinkedIn and Andy McMahon, you'll find me. Twitter, my handle is at electricweegee. I also have a website called electricweegee.com, which is not very updated. I'm also on Medium as well, just Andy McMahon. LinkedIn is probably where I'm most active slash addicted. I'm in one of those platforms. And you'll find me a lot on YouTube now. There's lots of videos out there of me gibbering on about ML, so you can find me there as well. Brilliant. Well, we'll put links to your book, to your reading blog and your uh, youtube channel in the show notes thanks again for joining us really appreciate your time it's been a great conversation deepak josh thanks very much good richard andy all the best take care that's it for today thanks for listening to this episode of the data and ai podcast from mesh ai for more information head over to our website meshai.com that's mesh-ai.com or get in touch via email podcasts at meshai.com that's mesh-ai.com See you next time.